Here's my opening question. How's your happy? How are you doing right now? I'm going to give you a little scale on the screen here, and I want you to find a spot on your paper, and I want you to draw how your happy is right in this moment, okay? So there's some, uh, there's some little suggestions on, on how you could be doing this morning. Something that's common to every single person in this room is this. You are on a happiness quest. You do things because you think they will make you happy. You are pursuing things because you think that they will make you happy. So here's the question. How is it going? How's your happiness going? Here's a problem. How do you find happiness? We've all gone after things that we thought would make us happy. We've all pursued things. We've saved up money for things. We've been in relationships. We've gone places. And we thought, that will make me happy. And sometimes there's a measure of happiness that comes with it. We say, yeah, that was a great vacation. That was a great time. This has been a great job. But many other times, the very thing we thought would make us happy doesn't make us happy. Here's what's interesting. There can be lots and lots of disagreement even while looking at exactly the same thing. There is a dress floating around the internet right now that illustrates this argument perfectly for me. And if you don't know what I'm doing, now you're going to go to your phone and look up the dress. You'll probably find it. Uh, I was drawn into this debate midweek, late at night. I was downstairs. I think I was watching a Sharks game or something. And my wife and my two oldest sons came down very animated with, with needing, needing me to help end their debate. They came down, they showed me a computer screen, they all, they all walked around me and said, what color is this dress? And they told me the, the, the debate a little bit. And I said, stop looking at the black and blue dress and go to bed. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's it. And then, and then uh, they all submitted to their father's wonderful wisdom and it ended the debate for all time. Not really. Point is, we can all be looking at the same thing. And we can see two completely different things. Sometimes that's the way life is. We perceive things differently from other people. We've been in this series called Red Words. And the gist of it is this. We're just looking at the sermons and the stories of Jesus. And we're doing this so that we can learn directly from him. This morning we start the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, is the most famous sermon in all of history. It's the most quoted, the most memorized, the most revisited sermon that's ever been preached. And so we figured we probably should put it in this series that's looking at the sermons and stories of Jesus. So that's where we are this morning. Jesus kicks off this sermon with a whole lot of happy. That's why we did the song. He just gushes out of the gate with happy, happy, happy. And so that's where we're starting off this morning. It's happy turned on its head though. Some of you have read the sermon. Some of you know the sermon well. If you don't know where it is, it's Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be. Gospel of Matthew starting in chapter 5. This sermon still speaks to us loudly and I hope, I hope that we can come this morning as children. I hope that we can come anticipating and expectant and ready to lean in to the stories and sermons of Jesus. First thing, I'm going to give you a few things to kind of keep in mind about the whole sermon, and then we're going to dive into our little part. We decided to break the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters long, into four sermons. So there's three of us who are going to preach this. There's four weeks of this. We're going to take just kind of the opening chunk of it. You may have remembered seeing this image during the World Cup. This is down in Brazil. And it's a massive statue of Jesus that overlooks the city. And of all things, he's up on a mountaintop. This isn't quite how the Sermon on the Mount was probably given, but it kind of stirred that imagery of Jesus on a mountain preaching things. This is how the sermon has ended up. It preaches to a lot of people. Let me give you a couple of opening thoughts just about the sermon in general. Number one is this. Jesus preached the sermon, and he didn't go back and qualify the things that are said. So we want to highlight the words that Jesus said. As I mentioned, myself and two others are going to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to come back and offer some commentary, but there's massive weight. Catch this. There's massive weight to just hearing it as Jesus gave it. Jesus is going to lay out some things that you don't need to be a Greek scholar. You don't need to have studied ancient Near Eastern culture to get. 
You're going to read some words, and there's going to be tremendous value to just hear it exactly how it was. I'll tell you a really, really humbling part of this whole series. Is that Jesus preaches a sermon, and then a preacher a couple thousand years later is going to come and comment on it. Here's what I know. I know I can't improve the sermon. I know I'm not going to add any. I know he didn't forget some things that I need to go, well, here's what Jesus meant to say. So it's a really humbling task. And what we want to do is have the sermon out in front and have you see and read the words. Here's what I get. I talk to Christians. I know people. I know people who are searching. Some say, man, I know I should read the Bible more. I, I, I am starting to believe or I've come to totally believe that it's God's word. And yet I just don't read it as much as I probably should. Here's a great exercise on Sunday mornings is the public reading of God's word. You know that when you come to Neighborhood Bible Church, you're going to hear the Bible read. So we're going to do that this morning and in the weeks to come for sure. Here's the second thing about it. It is brutally honest. I just want to give a a disclaimer, a warning. You will be offended if you read the Sermon on the Mount. As I read the words of Jesus, it will offend your politics. It will offend your morality. It will offend your pocketbook. It will offend your schedule. It will offend your sensibilities. There are probably things that you've grown up hearing from your parents, from your pastors, from your teachers, from people you really respect. And Jesus is going to counter it in this sermon. Three chapters, I guarantee you there's at some point it will absolutely undo you and be painful to listen to. Here's the third thing. This is spoken to everyday Christians, not super Christians. So as Jesus is talking about the kingdom way of living for kingdom people, here's what he's talking about, Christians. He's not talking about those going into full-time ministry. He's not talking about those who want to go lead and start different things. He's talking to Christians. This is the way of the Christian. You're going to hear some things in the Sermon on the Mount that will seem as far away and as foreign to you as trying to be able to jump to the moon. Go live on the moon. And yet, Jesus is beckoning Christians to follow him in this way of life. So lean into that. Here's another one. Number four. This is not a new Ten Commandments. What you'll see in the sermon is this. Jesus is actually setting people free from the captivity of the law. God gave the Ten Commandments back in the Old Testament. A part of what was going on in this day and age when Jesus was preaching is that the law was being used like a prison cell. And so you're going to hear Jesus refer back to the law. He's going to talk about some things. But here's what goes on. In our day and age, as we reach back to the Sermon on the Mount, you know what's possible? It's possible for us to go and grab the letters of the law and not catch the spirit of the law at all. I'll just give you one example. Number one is this. You've been taught to pray this way, is what Jesus says during the Lord's Prayer. And he says, instead, you ought to pray like this. And then he lays out a prayer. And he says this. He says, you're not heard for your many words or your mindless repetition. What have people done with the Lord's Prayer? They've turned it into mindless repetition and just many words. It's not real communication. It's not what Jesus was teaching us. But what we've done is we've reached back to the Sermon on the Mount. We said, oh, that's how you're supposed to pray. You're doing it wrong. It's not like this. That's missing the point completely. And there's a hundred pitfalls in these next four chapters where we can do exactly the same thing and make this a new Ten Commandments for today. Here's one more. You'll get this sermon if you focus on the internal and not on the external. Jesus is after heart. He's after character. He's after motive. That is what he's going for. That's what he's talking about. So he's undoing and not looking at the external. So if that's all you've ever been taught, if that's where your default mindset goes to, keep coming back to that. Remember, Jesus is after the heart. Here's a couple of big themes that we're going to look at. What's the difference between a panoramic lens and a, and a macro lens? Someone help me out. What's panoramic? Wide, right? Wide angle. What's macro mean? Small. It's zooming in, right? You're going to take... A picture of a droplet of water on a single leaf, right? You're going to use your macro lens and come, and come right in. To understand the Sermon on the Mount, to really get it, I want to encourage you to look at kind of a panoramic look of things. Not just the sermon, 
but in life. If you go into the macro level of life, you will hear some things this morning in the nine Beatitudes or the nine happies, and you will say, that doesn't make any sense. I don't see that happening. So that's, that's the lens I want you to kind of keep in mind as we move forward. Secondly, you're going to see the word reward talked about. Not the word reward, but the idea of, of reward. Heaven is mentioned 19 times in the Sermon on the Mount. 19 times he alludes to heaven. Your father's in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. C.S. Lewis said this, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, at earth and you get neither. So what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount is he is pointing us to truths that are beyond this life. He's pointing us to realities and rewards that are beyond the here and now. And thirdly, in terms of big themes, I just have the word paradigm shift. And I have the word paradigm shift because of this. He's talking about kingdom living. This is coming off a couple of chapters earlier where Jesus has um, the encounter with, uh, with Nicodemus that Lindsay read at the very start of, of the service, that you must be born again. People who are born of the flesh, which is all of us, are, are fleshly and natural, but, but the spirit gives life to spirit. And he says you must be born again. Kingdom people living the kingdom way is all together different. If you try to cram a little bit of what the Sermon on the Mount says, and it's going to say some things that you go, that's a really good point. You're going to come across some little axioms that you go, wow, that's, that was said by Jesus. I use that all the time. I didn't even know he said that. But if you try to just do like a, you know, pick and pull parts and cram them into your life, it's not going to work. That's not, that's not the, the picture. The picture is you must be born again. And that's how the sermon fits together. All right, let's go back to happy for a moment. I want you to look at the happy face or not so happy face that is currently drawn on your picture. And I want you to ask yourself and answer a second question just internally. Why? Why did you draw the picture that you drew this morning? Here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that if someone comes and says, on a scale of not so happy to very happy, draw yourself right now. I would suspect that identifying where you're at with happy is a lot easier this morning than part two of the question. Okay, now why? Why are you drawn with a straight line across the happy face? Why is it a massive smile? Why is it a frown? There might be some some immediate easy answers, but if you sit with that question for a while, some of you are deeply troubled and deeply sad today, and you can't put your finger on it. Frankly, that actually leads to more angst, doesn't it? More anxiety about it. Some of you look at your life and you go, I know the general term is I have God in my life, but I can't describe how utterly joyful I am despite all my circumstances really being in the trash can right now. I I can't really put my finger on it. There's there's a nebulous component to all that we're going to talk about. You want to know what you think will make you happy? Think of the person that you think of right now that is most to be congratulated. That if you go up to anyone that you know or know about and say, man, I just want to congratulate you. Chances are that that person is someone that has something to their life, a possession, a personality, uh, a, a position in life, health, that you think make you happy. To put it in a little bit darker terms, who do you envy the most right now? Now, envy is a sin, but we struggle with envy. Who is it that you envy right now? You know what might start to give you a clue of what you think internally is most honest about what makes you happy? Not the Sunday school church answer, but what you really think is who you envy or who you think should, should be congratulated the most. Here's my question this morning that Jesus addresses. What if you could be truly happy? What about happy to the ninth power? That's a lot of happy, right? That's a pretty deep, sustaining happy that goes to a lot of different levels. Jesus opens this sermon appealing to people's happiness. Now, we're going to read the word blessed, and depend on, depending on where you grew up, 
what part of the country, if you grew up in church or if you grew up watching different caricatures of preachers on TV, you might hear the word blessed and hear blessed or even blessed. Like a three-syllable word, right? And it sounds old and dusty or maybe it sounds really majestic, but you're not entirely sure what it means. Happy. To be congratulated. Now, there's different kinds of happy. We, we, we know that, right? We can talk about the fact that we're, that we're happy about this or we're happy about that. But we also know what it means to be really happy. You could insert the word joy. There's scales of the word happy. Jesus gives them nine attitudes and character traits that lead to happiness. And then he gives an application. Here it is. Ready? Rejoice. Nine happies. And then here's the application. Rejoice. Be very glad about these things. So as you can see, that's where Jesus is taking us. Now, this is all fine and dandy until you read it for yourself. Because it's not a feel-good kind of happy that we're about to look at. Matthew chapter 5, if you're not there, which I'm not, turn there, please. And you can follow along in just a moment. Jesus dispels an age-old formula that is a myth. And it's still going really, really strong today. It goes something like this. Happiness equals being filled up and full of myself. Or to put it a different way, happiness equals more stuff and a better me. You ever get advice like that from within your own head? You ever get advice like that from people around you? More stuff and a better you. You'll be happy. I mean, that, that boils it down. Let me ask you a question. How many percentage-wise of Americans would you describe as deeply happy, happy to the ninth power? Someone shoot their hand up and tell me percentage-wise what they think uh, it would be, percentage-wise. Percentage of Americans who are really, really happy. We don't know. This is very unscientific, but Dwayne. Three percent, okay? Someone else have a different answer? Brett. Two percent. Do I hear one? I feel like an auctioneer all of a sudden. Patty. Uh, five. Five percent? Okay. Those are, those are pretty paltry numbers. Anyone, anyone feel like an optimist and think it's like 99%? We just can't go there. We, we, we want to be an optimist. We want to think that's true, but I think I'm with you. I, I certainly don't think it's more than 50. I think it's probably pretty low that would describe themselves as really happy. Here's what's really interesting. Much of the world, I haven't traveled a ton, but I've traveled enough, and I've talked to a ton of international students. Much of the world is envious of America and Americans. You, sitting right here. You know why? Because you're affluent. You have money. Not only that, you have freedoms right now that, that you take for granted, and I take for granted every single day until you travel and go somewhere else and are restricted. And thirdly, you have opportunity. That means you can start off here and work your way to here and then possibly work your way to here. Opportunity, money, and freedom. So here's the question. Don't those things provide happiness? Don't those things naturally equate to happiness? I mean, evidently not by our very unscientific research that we just did a few moments ago. I don't see that experientially. Now, here's the thing. People who live in said place, America, we tend to look at things as well and think, if only. Now, I don't want to have you raise your hands on this, but I would venture to guess that many of us, if we were pinned to a corner and you were asked this question, would $1 million solve most of your happiness problems? Maybe not sitting Sunday morning on church. There you might be thinking about it a little bit differently. But how about Thursday afternoon when you're sitting down to pay some bills? You go, yes. I would take, I would even take $50 less than that. And I think it would, I think that could cover most of my happiness problems. Is it true? I mean, the wealthiest of the wealthy, are they the happy ones? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, talking about Jesus, went up on the mountain and sat down. Uh, and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive 
mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Get to the end of your rope. Get to the end of yourself. And that's a good place to be. Because you're looking for the needs you have in God. And there's a lot of room with all that you cluttered out to be filled up with God. As Jesus talks about happiness, he doesn't forget the kind of world that we live in. Didn't that sound like a very realistic list? It wasn't just happy, shiny, put on a plastic face. That sounded like real world things. He tells us to be happy and to deny ourselves. Our joy is not mainly in prosperity, but in obedience and often in pain. Remember that there are some would-be followers of Jesus who get sidetracked. Why? Because of the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. See Luke chapter 8. Be happy and deny yourself. Sounds like competing commands, doesn't it? But maybe it's a little bit like this. Maybe it's a little bit like a doctor telling you, be cancer-free and have surgery, which also happens to be a little rap. You could kind of form that into something. David Crowder says it this way. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's a profound little statement. We all want the reward, but we don't want to die to ourselves. We don't want to be about self-denial. But Jesus says those two things go together. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take each one of these. We're going to look at them very briefly because there's a lot of them. We have a little bit amount of time. But what I hope to happen is this. I hope this draws you in to want to look at these and sit with these longer than a cursory reading. This whole sermon is really powerful. The more you hear it and read it and listen to it and really sit with, with the text. Um, note that it doesn't say on any of these that they will be blessed, they will be happy, but they are happy right here, right now. Here's the first one, poor in spirit. Read it with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a whole lot of talk today in evangelical Christianity and writings of books about being filled with the spirit, but not a whole bunch on being poor in spirit, being empty of spirit. I don't see a lot of sermons or books on that sort of thing. What we know this doesn't mean is being physically poor. You know why? Haven't you met? Well, I know I've met. I've spent a good deal of time around poor people. I have met plenty of poor people who are utterly full of themselves. Empty-handed, but totally full of themselves. So it's not talking about physically poor. You could have physically poor who are also poor in spirit, but it doesn't necessarily equate. Here's the second thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean low self-esteem. This is not talking about self-loathing. Oh, I'm just poor in spirit. Woe is me. You know how I know that's true? Jesus was poor in spirit. He doesn't preach things he doesn't practice. And that would never describe Jesus is that he was self-loathing or self-hating in some way. So that's what it doesn't mean. Poor in spirit is the opposite of rich in spirit. Rich in spirit is one who thinks that they don't have any needs. It's being full of yourself. Jesus exposed the spiritual condition of a church that today sits in modern-day Turkey, and he says it this way. You say, church, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Jesus gives a different assessment. Here's what he says. You say those things not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I wonder how many today have a completely upside-down view of their standing before God right now. In their heart, in their head, and in their deepest conviction of their soul, they say, I'm doing okay. I'm good. I'm at least in. I'm not an A+, but I'm not an F. I'm okay before God. I wonder what 
Jesus would say about our condition. Jesus said he didn't come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. That's poor in spirit. You know who is poor in spirit? I'm sure of it. The prodigal son. The prodigal son leaves full of himself and utterly assured of himself. How does he return? Empty-handed. He comes back home and he's got one play. What is it? Beg for mercy. That's it. That's his only play. He doesn't bring anything to the table that says, here's what I can do in exchange for some, some just, a, just a hint of mercy or grace. He returns poor in spirit. Jesus says this is a good place to be. It characterizes those who have a proper view in the sight of a holy God. It's marked by humility, and it's seen in the repentant. And catch this, it is the starting point for every Christian. Look at the result. The result is entrance into the kingdom. What's the result for the prodigal son? It's a welcome hug, right? Come on back. And that morphs into a giant celebration, a party. You want to enter the kingdom? You must bow your head. Poor in spirit. Only those will receive the riches of God. Here's why. The rest don't even see their need for the riches of God. Because they're rich. Let's go on. Read this next one with me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is there a more counter-cultural statement than this? I mean, our entire world system is set up to avoid mourning and having reason to mourn. Oh, sure, we say it's okay to get a good cry out. It's good to do that. But everyone who's looking at someone else mourning in this world system says this, man, they are to be pitied. And the person thinking that is clinging to any hope they can find to say that they're not next. Been to a funeral lately? That's what people are thinking. And so we live in pleasure maniaville, entertainment maniaville. That's where we live. We, we are set up in this world to distract, to, to entertain, to not think about these things, and certainly to avoid mourning. There's all kinds of, of things you could go spend your money on right now to distract yourself from things that you would cry about. That's how things are set up. Yet Jesus says you're well off if you mourn. You're in a good place. You're blessed. You're happy. What? You don't expect that to find that in the big happy sermon, right? That just throws me for a loop. To view this with a macro lens, zeroing in on it, you utterly miss this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How about people, we just looked at this for a whole month. How about all those orphans right now not being cared for? How about widows right now today who are utterly forgotten by their families? How about destitute people? Are they being comforted? You could look at this and and miss it. Don't look at it through the macro lens. We all cry for many reasons, but Jesus is primarily talking about the mourning over this poverty of self. It's the grieving of our sin. Did you know that Jesus was called a man of sorrows and that he was acquainted with grief? What did Jesus cry about? What did he mourn over? Think about it. You guys know your Bibles. He cried over death. He cried over sin. He cried over rebellion, hypocrisy, ignoring God, being lukewarm. These are the things that made Jesus sad. True repentance produced tears of sorrow over sin, humiliation, regret, seeing sin for what it is from God's eyes. Rather than belittle, excuse, ignore, or compare sins, you know what disciples of Jesus do? They have the light expose their sin, and then they face it. And when you face your sin, it is horrifying. It is painful. It is gut-wrenching. You mourn. You weep. Are you starting to see why that's a good place to be? 
That's a much better place to be than to be a leper. You know what a leper is? It's one who, who can't feel pain and doesn't understand how, how in danger they are as they're leaning against a fire because they can't feel it. It's good to feel your sin. It's good to feel your pain from Jesus' standpoint. With Paul, we cry out this, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? What's the result of those who mourn? They're going to be comforted. And you know how you're comforted when you're in that state? You're comforted by a Savior. Here's how Paul answers it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You're comforted when you're mourning over your poverty of self with forgiveness and with grace. Jesus doesn't come with a pandering, there, there, everything will be okay. You know what he does? He comes and makes everything okay. Huge difference. Haven't you been there to comfort someone and say it's going to be all right? And in your mind thinking, it's just a little white lie, Lord. I I need to tell him something, right? (laughs) Because we don't know what else to say. We don't know it's going to be all right. Jesus comes and he makes everything all right. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Here's the next one. Read it with me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Question, do you assert yourself or humble yourself? How do you react when sin is pointed out in you? It's one thing for you to see your own poverty of self. It's one thing for you to mourn over your own sin. It's quite another to have someone else do that. To respond when someone else points out sin in your life with meekness, that's the kingdom way. In fact, that might be a decent test to see how much you think of yourself as as poor in spirit and how much you've mourned over your sin. I feel defenses rise up in me all the time when someone wants to be critical of me and, and point things out. You know what that is? That's a richness in self, isn't it? That's a sense that I've got it all together and how dare someone else point something out in me. Meekness says just the opposite. This does not seem to be the way that life works. Inherit the earth, meek? Really? I would say it goes to the proud, the powerful, and the important. That's who gets the earth. Let me take you to window six of the DMV at Santa Teresa. I've taken you here because I was here this week. And as I was waiting in line for an exceedingly long time, even though I had an appointment, not bitter, just, just telling you the truth, um, I nudged my 16-year-old son and I said, I said hey, look, look on back uh, past the eye chart um, and see those two pictures. There's two pictures of people on the wall. And I asked him this question. I said, who do you think is the boss? And I don't know if you can tell from the picture, but one picture is up a couple of inches from the other. <laughs> I mean, isn't that funny? That's the way the world works right there. In Jesus' kingdom, who's the boss? It's the servant. This is the boss. In any other setting in the world that you and I live in, who's the boss? It's the one a couple... Like, let me just show you my picture in case you forget. I'm over you. That's the way the world works. So when Jesus says, you're blessed if you're meek, you're going to inherit the earth, Again, you just have to sit with this and look at your life and go, really? Because almost every other input I get says exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus was never a pushover, and yet he was always meek. Jesus had unlimited power, but he was never a bully. He was described as gentle. He tells us that we're blessed if we mimic him in that. Who is wise and understanding among you, James asks. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The result is that you'll inherit the earth. There's a difference between entering and inheriting. You can enter the kingdom, but you can also have that as your inheritance. We know that to be true. You can be on the earth and you can be told this is yours. You get to inherit this. Jesus is speaking to reward, a major theme of the sermon. There's a certain present reality to this. In Christ, we all have all the authority and self-worth that we'll ever need. 
He owns it all, and we are his. But there's also a future reality that the Bible just kind of touches on. It's woven all through the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, that we'll judge the world. Romans 8 says we'll inherit the world. And 2 Timothy says that we'll reign or rule over the earth. So there's both the present reality of this, but also that panoramic lens, this long-term view toward it. Let's look at these so far. Poor in spirit, mourn, and meek. If you made a list at the start of 2015 and said, I want to improve in nine character traits, any of these three make your list? Mine neither. I mean, do you see how countercultural this is, even for Bible-believing Christians, to come back to this and go, wow, those are powerful words. Here's the next one. Read it with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What do you long for? We all have a bunch of different appetites, don't we? Parents, I'll tell you what you do. You do not leave your kids just to their own appetites because you want to give them free will. You nurture appetites because you know or at least have a sense of where your kid will end up raised on a diet of, you know, ho-hos and Coke, right? That's not going to go well for your kid. So you nurture your kid's appetites. God does the same thing. God wants us to want the right things, that which really satisfies. Life of a Christian is one of absolute strong desire. It's an insatiable appetite for God. Consider the alternative to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is it? It's pushing back from the table and going, Woo! I'm stuffed! No more for me! I'm done! That's the alternative. We know that's not where we ought to be. And yet, if we're honest, we all say, I don't know if I hunger and thirst like I should. I love that you're here with me this morning. I really do. It's powerful to me to think about the fact that our church and a church down the street, another one right around the corner, is filled with people who who are just hungry for God. They're saying, man, I want to be fed. I want to be given something that I can chew on. As you think about this hunger and thirsting for righteousness, and you think about kind of the flow of what Jesus has given us so far, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness is born from a place of humility. It's born from our own poverty of spirit. It's born from seeing our own sin very, very clearly exposed by the light and mourning over it. It carries with it a really meek tone. I say all that to say this. This is not a license to go be the holiness police. A lot of harm gets done in this world by Christians who are on a self-righteous, holier-than-thou crusade against other people. There's a hungering and thirsting that uh, for righteousness, but it's born out of real humility, and that takes on a completely different tone. Your stomach growls when you're hungry, right? Your mouth starts to salivate. Does your soul ever growl? You ever growl for God? Do you ever have a parchedness in your life that you say, God, just, just a drop of leading from you is what I long for. Some of you have been in seasons of time where you felt so drawn near to God, and now it's not like that. And you thirst for that again. You're hungry for that again. Man, that's a great place to be. You're happy, even if you don't know it. Even in that dark night of the soul, God's there. He's he's ushering you in and through that. He's with you in that. What's the result of this one? You'll be satisfied. It's coming. Keep up the pursuit. Keep after it. As you pray and strive for personal holiness and to change the world for good, hungry for God to be honored, He will meet you there. He will answer that prayer. Let's go on to the next one. Verse 7, read it with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Christian has compassion on the poor and needy precisely because she has received compassion as a poor and needy person. It is not a giant leap to go and be compassionate to other people in their poverty of spirit, in their deep sin. And if it seems that way, there might be some problems. One who is unmerciful, unforgiving, unloving, ought to take a really long look at themselves as to whether they've experienced mercy, forgiveness, and love. 
What you're doing when you are showing mercy is you're showing God. How do you know anything about mercy? It's been shown to you by God. You're just showing forth God. You're showing off God and reflecting what you've experienced. Where meekness recognizes your own personal need and frailty, the merciful sees that in in others and is then kind toward them in that. The result is that mercy has been given. Mercy will be received. The promise and reward is tender dealing from God. Mercy shown in kind. If you look at the Lord's Prayer and a parable of the unmerciful servant, you'll see some more of Jesus' heart on what he's talking about here. Let's move on to verse 8. Read it with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As you kind of read this whole sermon back to back to back, um, what you see is that Jesus is really, really concerned with, with rooting out hypocrisy in this sermon. Having a healthy heart, then, is evidently paramount to this whole process. Jesus purifies us and gives us a new heart. We, our part, is to take care to keep our hearts singularly focused on God, to guard our hearts. Why do we need to guard our hearts? Because there's a lot of things that lead my heart astray. A lot of things that can trip us up as we are divided in our devotions. Like the rest of these, we are completely dependent on God for a pure heart, and yet we can either cooperate with God in that or we can compete with God in that. Isn't that true? There's a God part to each of these. There's an our part to each of these. What's the result? That we'll see God. The pure in heart will see God. I'm sure you've had moments and times and seasons in your life where a sense of His presence is is palpable. You can can feel Him right there. You've you've had leading so crystal clear. You have physical reactions to it. You go, no way! I love hearing your stories on that. This goes on all the time around here, by the way. Conversely, our prayers, our seeing God, our hearing God can fade rapidly. When we harbor sin in our heart, when we leave it unconfessed, when instead of facing it and allowing the light of the truth to come expose it, instead we cover it up and become callous to it, that begins to put a block in all of our relationships, not just with God. Sin puts barriers in relationship. Sin kills relationship. It's absolutely no different with God. So the pure in heart see God. Let's move on to verse 9. Read it with me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Have you heard that slogan, give peace a chance? Give peace a chance. Anyone else come to find that peace is kind of hard? I mean, that's, that's really difficult. More of us would be really good if it said, happy are the disruptive, the conflict inducers, and the mayhem makers. You're like, got that. I, I got all kinds of awards in school for those things. I worked for one month for Chris Shelley doing demo work. He never hired me to build stuff, just tear stuff apart. It's a lot easier to, to destroy things than to build things, right? I've never really been to many peace rallies, but it's interesting how many peace rallies in the movies and certainly on the news end up with violent shouting confrontations. Peace is tough. Today it seems more like happy are the competitive and the aggressive. That's what I'm shown on a regular basis. Jesus models something different. Peace isn't just tolerating others or or stopping hitting other people or laying down your guns, but really working toward reconciliation. Reconciliation has to do with healing, coming back together in unity. Do you see how tough this is? Jesus will preach, as we see, and will live this truth. Pray for your enemies, and more than that, love them. That's what he's going to preach in this sermon. That's what he's going to live in his life. That takes work, divine work. Jesus is showing us just how upside down this happy living is. In the 60s, people were being killed because of their skin color. There were some people 
who were trying to live out Jesus-style happiness. They were pursuing happiness by being obedient to Jesus. And it's crystal clear they read this sermon. Look at this quote from Martin Luther King. Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. You do that, Jesus says, you'll be called sons of God, children of God. Today, people are killing because of their belief in Jesus. It's been going on for centuries, but it's getting a lot of news attention right now. Christians are being rounded up and abused and killed. The world's starting to really take notice. If you listen carefully, here's what I'm hearing as a response to this. That we should organize, that we should rally, that we should fight, and that we should punish in kind. That's the call, even in some Christian circles, that I'm hearing in response to things going on in the Middle East. This leads us right into the next two happies. You are blessed if you are abused, persecuted, killed for righteousness' sake, and when you are hated, insulted, and abused. We're not going to take the time to read this one, but 10 and 11 I'll take together. Do you know that the powers that be stop if you keep silent about Jesus? The threats come. Knock it off and we'll leave you alone. You can go back to your comfortable life. It's been true through the centuries. And many have been tested with this very real test. Profess Christ and you get hurt, deny him, and you'll be comfortable. Here's Jesus' application for this. You should rejoice about that. You're being treated the way that the messengers of God have always been treated through the centuries. They've been misunderstood and mistreated for trying to bring about peace. I want you to consider this. That loving your enemy and praying for them is, there, there's an immediate action item right now. Anyone hear of ISIS on a daily basis like I do? Do you know that Jesus loves individual people? Not ISIS, the organization, but individual members. And he longs for them to stop their rebellion and come to faith. That's it. That's our action item. Do you see that there's a massive opportunity for us, because most of the world are using words like evil, which is an absolute truth word on the nightly news. It's everywhere. And all of a sudden, it opens up questions for us to, to dive in and talk about. It's an open door to discuss what should be punished, what should be the punishment for evil. Are there, is there hope? Is there any restitution for someone who commits these atrocities? What's the graded area between what they think is right and pursuing happiness and what, and what we do? There's a wide open door to, to dive in and to discuss truths of this nature. While people are being recruited to a belief system of dominance and hate, Christians alone offer the truth. They offer hope. They offer a completely different way. It was true in Jesus' day. It was true in the 60s. It's true right now. And it's not comfortable. It will not be comfortable for any of us. I want to close this morning by reading about the identity that Jesus informs of his disciples. He says this, you are salt and light. And as I read it, starting in verse 13, it speaks to the obvious good of each, the flavoring and sight, but it also offers a warning, and that is this, neither one of these does any good hanging out in the salt shaker or under a basket. Follow along. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do you flavor and shine in this world? What specifically are you supposed to do? Happiness 
This blessed life is something that God is forming in you if you're a Christian. And much like the fruit of the Spirit, these aren't things that you muster up. Instead, these are a natural byproduct of kingdom living, of being born again, of that paradigm shift that has gone on. Let me give you three really tangible things. You must be born again. This is the paradigm shift. It's the starting point. It happens as a gift of God. Here's my invitation to you. Today, if you hear His voice, if you say, I want in on that, let's do this thing, I, I want to follow Jesus, then, then, then that's it. Respond by saying, Jesus, I trust in you. I, I repent of my sin. I want to be born again. If you make that decision, would you please come talk to me? Come talk to someone and, and say, hey, I, I need to know what happens next, but, but I've put my trust in Christ today. Number two is, is this. That Christians, not just in word, but sheep who actually follow His voice, are enamored with Christ. Enamored is a big fancy word to say deeply in love with, smitten by, can't get Him off their minds and hearts. And as people enamored with Christ, it is naturally that we will emulate Him. Enamored people emulate the ones that they're in love with. Emulate means copy or mimic or follow. Christian means little Christ. So as one who's deeply in love with Christ, copy Him. If He says X is important, X becomes important to you. If He says this way to happiness, you trust Him and you walk this way. If He says don't ever go over that way, you trust Him and you say, I don't want to be like that. I'm deeply in love with Christ. Do you see how this gets to the heart? Do you see how this gets way more internal than just external stuff? Here's a third one. The third one is built into our sermon series title every week is the application. Read. Read the words for yourself. If you forget anything I say on any given week, go back and read. Read the text. We're looking at the words of Christ. They still teach. They still instruct and warn and rebuke and encourage. So here's my invitation to you this week. Read one time the whole Sermon on the Mount before you meet in community group this week. In one sitting, sit down and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Maybe you'll do it as a family. Maybe you'll do it as an individual. But take me up on that challenge to just read the sermon for yourself.